Welcome back to Dads on the Air, coming to you around Australia on the Community Radio Network. In this program, we bring you informing and entertaining conversations with a wide range of interesting people on topics of fatherhood, family and parenting, men's and boys' issues. Hi, I'm Bill Cable, and our guest today is Dr. James Best, a general medical practitioner, a father, and author of his latest book, Sam's Best Shot. Dr. Best uh, was awarded in 2010 the prestigious RACGP General Practice Supervisor of the Year Award in recognition of his outstanding work as a GP and educator, and he has presented at international scientific conferences on autism, as well as co-authoring guidelines for other GPs on how to screen for, diagnose and manage children with autism. James, welcome to the program. So, uh, James, in 2015, you spent six months travelling through ten countries in Africa with your, uh, with just your youngest son, Sam. Uh, did this give you a new appreciation of the relationship you had with Sam? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, Sam and I had always been very close, but having such a prolonged exposure to the chaotic world that is Africa, it really sort of made us sort of understand each other a lot better. Uh, we both were fairly... Um, not I wouldn't say traumatised, but stressed. We were both very stressed by the whole process, and uh, and um, there was some a, a bit of uh, conflict early on with Sam, just because he was struggling so much, which was unusual for him. Uh, but um, we worked through it, and we um, we I think we really learned a lot about each other. Well, it was an extreme step for a Sydney GP, wasn't it? Um, uh, why did you do it? Uh, well, Sam is on the autism spectrum, and um, he was diagnosed when he was three. And we, uh, like many um, uh, families with a child with autism, we did uh, early intensive early intervention. And um, my wife is actually um, uh, the author of the Australian Autism Handbook. She's an expert in the area, and so our understanding of the latest research in autism um, had led us to an understanding that really exposing uh, these children to uncertainty and unpredictability is the best way to get. Um, their, their skills to develop. We sort of saw this as another opportunity as he approached adolescence, and, and which is another time where the brain is very, uh, what's called neuroplastic, where it can, uh, can um, change and, and improve. And, um, and so we decided that this was another opportunity to expose him to this sort of uncertainty and unpredictability and for him to, to develop his life skills. You'd presumably had other treatments before you decided on this, uh, this extreme method. Yes, um, well, really, uh, I, I'm not so sure. Whether, I actually didn't think it was extreme. A lot of other people did. But really, it was just an extension of the principles that we had applied in early childhood. The only difference with this thing, with what we were doing in adolescence, was that it hadn't really, it didn't have a scientific basis. Now, both my wife and I are scientific uh, backgrounds, and, and so, um, but it, it still made sense in terms of what we understood about autism and especially in early childhood, but also uh, what we understand about how the adolescent brain works. And so it was a combination of those two factors that, that led us, in, uh, without a scientific evidence, but certainly with a scientific understanding, that we that this was a, a reasonable and logical step to do. We knew there were risks involved, of course, uh, but but there's also risks in not doing something, so uh, in, in terms of not getting the uh, the development that you would otherwise get. And you decided that the time was right because of this 
sudden extra growth in in the brain at adolescence, uh, similar to say when he's a, when a child is say two or three. Yes, yes. It's um, the adolescent brain has been referred to as a second spring, um, in that what there is resurgence of neuronal growth and connection, as well as a pairing back of a lot of the connections and, and nerves that aren't used so much, and this is all washed over with uh, uh, hormones and growth factors. And it really leads to a lot of change in the brain at that age. And, and a lot of people will sort of have an understanding that things like gap years and, and you know, time spent overseas or travelling or, you know, where you're doing plonged stays in, in bush settings and all that sort of stuff that people do in adolescence. Uh, so, so it's not like we're the first one to try this. Um, it, it's a, even across cultures, there's often, you know, send the young man out into the wild to learn. That sort of thing um, is often done. But... Um, so that that's I've been understood for a long time about the adolescent brain. Now Sam was uh, about fourteen, I think, when you went on the uh, the excursion. Uh, where where does he fit on the autism spectrum? Would you say? Well, Sam is uh, some autistic people, you know, obviously are severely disabled and can't speak and need a lot of help. And there are some that are uh, only mildly affected and may not even be diagnosed. Um, and Sam's really neither of those. He's somewhere in the middle. He was um, went to a, a special needs primary school but then we transitioned him into a, a mainstream school for year seven and he he coached but he needed a lot of help at the school but um but uh, so he's got intelligence in some areas he can he can um, uh, do all sorts of things with computers and he's very good at maths and he can play the piano but he has trouble well certainly before Africa he had trouble uh, you know having a conversation and uh, and just going to the, the corner store and ordering something for himself Yes, he, he comes across as a real charmer in your book, and I, I, I guess that was your experience when he was mixing with all these new people. He is. He's, he's uh, actually quite funny. He's got a very uh, a good sense of humour, and he, he kind of likes it when he says his out-there out sort of statements. He thinks of, like many autistic people, he thinks of things in a different way to what most of us think, and he will see things in a different way. And, and he'll say these things, and people react, and, he think, and he, I think he quite enjoys that people do find him interesting and amusing. And, um, and especially in Africa, where there was a, the, the language and cultural dimensions, uh, that um, this tall, lanky white guy would, would just say something, exactly what he thought, without any filter whatsoever. And um, it, caused, it caused a lot of uh, interesting moments. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure it expanded uh, your tolerance and uh, patience or whatever, because he, he doesn't seem slow to criticise you for whatever's going on. <laughs> he lets it rip. <laughs> I suppose I do play uh, with Sam. I do play uh, a more um, mentoring, instructing sort of role. That's always been the way I've um, uh, interacted with Sam. And so he does. He does buck up. Um, and as he's getting older, like a lot of teenagers, you know, he, he he wants to be more independent. He wants to be more his own person. So um, so yeah. So uh, uh, which is fine. Um, so, but it does lead sometimes to a little bit of conflict and negotiation. Mm. Now, I think there, you set out two main objectives on the trip. One was uh, to expose him to unexpected things, and also to work on that neuroplasticity that we've just been talking about. How did uh, how did you get on with those two main objectives? Well, certainly the un uncertainty and unpredictability Africa delivered in spades. Um, we spent most of our time, especially uh, as we got further away from you know, more developed countries like South Africa, um, we um, spent a lot of our time just simply lost and, <laughs> and, um, 
and really not knowing where we were going and where we were going to stay and what we were eating and you know who we were talking to and all that sort of stuff. It was really very uncertain. It, it's it's funny because we actually kind of got used to it. I certainly got used to it. I think Sam did too. Um, where you just sort of thought, well, I'm being lost, but I'm spending most of my time lost, so that's that's okay. <laughs> so yeah, that that certainly was very successful in terms of meeting that objective. In terms of the neuroplasticity thing, that was this was really a a, a bit of a stab in the dark. It was, it was um, from a, theor- a very theoretical sort of thing, not, not scientifically based at all. We just thought uh, it can do no harm though. That we, we just try lots of different exercises um, and activities that involve different sides of the body, uh, uh, sort of across the midline sort of neuronal activity, that involve strategic thinking, uh, that involve planning. So things like chess and boxing, and even you know catching and throwing a ball, obviously talking to people and having long conversations with people, problem solving, you know, whatever it was, you know, just to, anything that involved that sort of way of thinking or that sort of activity, we try to encourage. And we're speaking today with Dr. James Best, the general med- medical practitioner, a father and author of his latest book, Sam's Best Shot. We're going to take a short break now. We're going to play a very appropriate song. This is one by Paul Simon called Under African Skies. Joseph's face was black as night The pale yellow moon shone in his eyes His path was marked by the stars in the southern hemisphere And he walked his days under Africa's skies This is the story of how we begin to remember of love in the vein After the dream of falling and calling your name out These are the roots of rhythm and the roots of rhythm remain Oh, 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 oh,
was Under African Skies by Paul Simon. And we're speaking today with Dr. James Best, the author of his latest book, Sam's Best Shot. So, uh, James, uh, yes, we, we were just talking about the neuroplasticity exercises. You've been photographed uh, having boxing classes in unusual places, like at the top of Table Mountain. Did anyone uh, think that something was going wrong here? <laughs> uh, no. I think we, we used to get a lot of curious on, onlookers, um, you know, especially... We were doing this sort of thing or, you know, playing chess on places that you don't normally play chess, like in the middle of a national park and stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, it didn't matter. We, we, Sam and I kind of looked odd anyway. <laughs> um, so, so, um, so we got very used to that. And Sam certainly didn't, didn't care at all. Yeah, and it was kind of fun. It was as he, uh, he actually got quite good at chess. I mean, he played his first game in Cape Town and within three or four months, he, he was an excellent player. So, um, uh, so the strategic thinking was certainly coming along, and it was it was it was also enjoyable. Like you know that we're, I was doing stuff that with my kid that mm. you normally don't have time to do. So um, it was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, look, I think a lot of fathers would be uh, envious of you getting to spend six months one on one with with his uh, with his son. But uh, you you also had that added complication of adolescence and the growing sexual awareness of uh, Sam. There were, I think, a few little incidents there that you probably had to keep an eye on. <laughs> yes, because he's got no filter in what he says, and you know. There was the um, he'd see an, an attractive African woman and he might say something that was a bit awkward and I'd have to sort of you know sort of explain the situation or just you know get him out of there or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yes, there was that. And um, but he was also just keen to engage um, with the Africans in general, which was great to see. And they the African people. Um, I mean, you say African people, there's African peoples. You know, there's many na- many nations and tribes within Africa within Africa. Um, but their their general attitude and approach to life is so relaxed and so patient and very accepting. Um, it, it was very interesting to see how um, disability works in Africa. And are you talking mainly about the black Africans or did you confront any um, racist uh, problems over there with the whites and the blacks? I was surprised how little there was, uh, especially in South Africa, uh, which is a real melting pot um, of, of black, white and coloured, which is uh, coloured the expression that's used for people of mixed descent from uh, African, European and Asian background. And um, and I expected much more racial tension um, in South Africa, but I really didn't see it. And um, despite the very large inequity uh, between of wealth between mostly white and mostly black, uh, it was really didn't see. But as we got further north, away from South Africa and Namibia, and up through countries like Malawi and and Uganda, where you know there were very few uh, white white places around, and um, and uh, and Sam, of course, would point that out repeatedly. Mm. No, but he would say something like, "Hey, Dad, we're the only white people in the bus," or something like that. Mm. They, the Africans just laughed it off, and mm. um, and it was more of a curiosity than more than anything else. 
So uh, most of the people you found in Africa were able to speak English, were they? Yes, but often having very strong accents, which pushed Sam's communication skills and also culturally. You know, they, you'd, you'd be talking to someone who had never been to school or who had um, uh, uh, never seen a supermarket or, you know, uh, culturally, you know, the, the sort of conversations you, you could have was, um, was a real leap. Uh, religion played a very strong role as well over there. They're, they're very religious generally. And people would sort of, you know, be uh, one of the first questions they'd ask you is, you know, are you are you Christian or Muslim or pagan? Mm. <laughs> that sort of thing. So, so yeah, so there's some real cultural leaps as well. Now, much of the journey was filmed, and you had a blog, and uh, there was a uh, there was a lot of recording of what was going on. You also were reporting back to Griffith University, who were doing a study on this. Did you have any ethical concerns about revealing all this about your son as you were doing this? That's a good question. Um, I am confident that Sam has enough understanding uh, of what was happening with him and what exposure he was undergoing to realise uh, uh, that for him to make his own decision. And we certainly discussed it with him and asked him. Um, my wife and I both felt very comfortable that um, that he had adequate understanding of what he was getting exposed to. Of course, uh, this question sometimes arises, and I think one of the chapters of your book is called I Don't Want to Be Normal. And uh, you, you must wrestle with that, I suppose, sometimes. I and mean, he has this charm, he has this quirkiness, he has all these things. You know, do you really want to fix him and make him like all the rest of us? Uh, yes, yeah, so it's very, this is a very, very philosophical point. Uh, what, what is a disability? No. Uh, I mean, if you take someone like Sam and you put him in a Zambian village, he suddenly becomes less disabled because the expectations of that society are so, are so much less than ours that he, uh, that same person with that same level of autism uh, may be able to do what most of the other kids do, which is, you know, get through primary school years and then not do school anymore and to work in the fields and maybe have an arranged marriage. So in the West, uh, or developing world, developed world, I should say, uh, our expectations are so much greater. And um, so all of a sudden, the disability becomes much greater. So disability is a culturally contextual phenomenon. And, um, and so, yeah, so you've got to look at it in that way as well. And you did meet some children with autism on your travels. How did Sam relate to those other children? Yes, it was very interesting to see both children and adults that we met that had autism and other disabilities. And um, Sam reacted to them like he reacts to anybody. Uh, he just sort of takes them at face value and, and uh, just gets on with what he's doing. He wasn't particularly interested in somebody else just because they had autism. With one exception, we did meet an adult with um, severe autism who was nonverbal when we were in Namibia. And he talked about uh, Michael uh, a lot. Uh, subsequently, I think he, he maybe had a little bit of a, an emotional connection with um, how Michael existed and what his world was like uh, and certainly had a curiosity about it. Now, I think you would often explain to people that, that Sam had special needs. Um, how did you find that the Africans then related to Sam? Did they tend to back off or, or wade right no, in? No, no, the opposite. Um, it's funny that, that I found this quite intriguing, uh, the way that uh, the Africans would would uh, react to disability. Over there, disability is far more common uh, for a, a whole variety of reasons, many of them causative, like you know, poor obstetric care um, and antenatal care, um, vaccine, preventable diseases, causing disability, um, nothing getting fixed. You know, that the, 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 if you get a broken arm, 
that would easily be fixed in the developed world. It might mean a lifelong uh, deformity that stops you getting a job. So, so disability is everywhere in Africa. You just see it so commonly. And, um, and so I think people were sort of much more, oh, yeah, well, that's the way it is sort of thing uh, when they would find out Sam had special needs, as I would call it. And, um, and they'd just say, okay, what can you do and what can't you do? And, um, well, do you want, let's do something together, you know, that sort of thing. And whereas the West, it was like, oh, that's, um, we tried to try and paper over it and say, um, you, you know, that's, it's either uh, something to, to get outraged about or, and, fight, and fight against and this shouldn't happen and that sort of thing. Over there, it was just, well, that's the way it is. So let's just get on with things, which I found a lot of quite, I found, I found it quite comfortable with that. It was, it was, uh, it was much more honest, I thought. Sam, as one of your exercises, was asked to describe himself and he put there funny, kind, noisy, cheeky, relaxing and happy. Uh, <laughs> would you agree? I mean, the last one I think is particularly important. Would you agree with that? Yes. Actually, I think he was on the money there. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, so um, not particularly noisy actually lately. <laughs> but um, yes, I'd say that's a fairly accurate description. So um, the conclusions, you, know, you didn't get a magic bullet, the, the silver bullet to uh, fix autism, but I think you'd say there, there was a lot of progress and the Griffith University measured that, that improvement. How would you uh, say it's progressing now, you know, a year after the trip? It was interesting. We were, we were, my wife and Benison and I were, were worried that he might just go back to the way he was when we got back. Um, we had made gains in, in not only his communication skills, but the way he thought about himself, his self-belief, and his, what's called metacognition, which means thinking about thinking. And um, we were worried that he might just sort of revert, and um, but he didn't. There was a couple of things where he sort of picked up a few behaviours that he previously had again, but then they sort of seemed to drift away again. So, yeah, now he's continuing to grow and develop, and um, I'm, I'm no doubt really that that, um, that Africa gave him a boost above what could It's a wonderful thing you've done, and our, our guest today is Dr. James Best, who's uh, the author of the book Sam's Best Shot. So, James, uh, we've reached the stage of the program where we ask our guests to pick a song. Could you tell us which song you picked and why you picked it? Well, we're going to have a listen to Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter. Sam is, has uh, various obsessions through his life, and, and Harry Potter, particularly when we were in Africa, was his big number one obsession. He knew everything there is to know about Harry Potter. And um, I think that the guts he showed uh, when he was over there and doing what he did um, showed him to be even braver than Harry Potter. So that's why I like that song. So this is Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone.
that was Hedwig's Theme. Uh, that was written uh, and conducted by John Williams. And that was a choice of our special guest today, Dr. James Best. So it just remains for me, James, to thank you very much for being on the program and uh, to wish you all the best. I think you've done a wonderful thing and uh, I congratulate you on that and I wish all the best to you and to Sam. Thanks, Bill. It's great. And uh, don't forget, we'll be back next week with another show. Uh, we'd love to hear from any of our listeners. You can go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, and send us an email, and we'll be in touch. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any of our shows, go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, and you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. So we'll be back next week with another show. Bye from Dads on the Air.